Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. Our purpose in this series of broadcasts has been to substantiate the fact that there's more to the Christian gospel than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, certainly the death and resurrection of Christ are absolutely essential and absolutely central in the Christian message. But Jesus, according to our New Testament records, preached the gospel for a period of time before he said a word about his impending death and subsequent resurrection. That must prove then to any unprejudiced reader of the New Testament that the gospel has an element about it which is not the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that element, of course, has a definite label. It's called the gospel about the kingdom of God. And so the popular idea that Jesus came to do three days' work, to die and to be buried and to be raised, is not true to our New Testament documents. Neither is the other popular slogan that half the gospel is the death of Jesus and the other half is his resurrection. Both of those theories miss an essential part of the gospel message. In fact, the essential part, the foundation of the gospel message, which is the message about the kingdom of God coming as Jesus preached it. Now, Jesus made intelligent reception of the kingdom message an absolute sine qua non, an absolute essential for embarking upon the road that leads to salvation in the future kingdom. We find this in the famous parable of the soils. That parable describes in careful detail the process by which people become Christians and the necessary process by which they maintain themselves in the Christian faith. You see, the parable of the soils does not present the popular idea that once you're saved, you're saved forever. It presents the idea that you must begin on the road to salvation and that you must continue on that road and that you must come successfully to the end. In Luke chapter 8, Luke's version of the parable of the sower or soils, we find Jesus clearly saying that a person must continue to believe. It isn't sufficient to begin to believe because it's possible to fall away. Luke 8 and verse 13 talks of a group of Christian believers who, and I use the words of Jesus here, believe for a while. Their belief is temporary. It doesn't hang on through thick and thin. It doesn't maintain itself with perseverance to the end. The only category of believer that Jesus recognized as genuine and successful Christians, are those who, as he put it, receive the word, the message, the gospel of the kingdom, in a good and honest heart, and continue then to bear fruit with perseverance. Now, the picture we see of the Christian faith, as described in Jesus' words, is at odds with the popular notion that the moment a person takes the first step in salvation, he is automatically guaranteed a place in the future kingdom. That cannot be true on the basis of the plain language of Jesus in the parable of the soils. There's a category of Christian here clearly who believes temporarily. Now, to believe is to be a Christian. That's the technical term in the New Testament for being a Christian believer. To be a believer, to believe, is simply a synonym for being a member of the church, of the faithful. And yet there are some who are members of that faithful community 
only temporarily. And in time of trial, they fall away. They fall away from the faith. Now, Jesus said the same thing in John, the 15th chapter, where he described branches who are in him, that's to say, who belong to him, who were Christians. Some of those branches, Jesus said, would be burned up, would be cast away because they failed to bear fruit. Fruit-bearing in the teaching of Jesus is an essential quality of the successful Christian. And then also in the 25th chapter of Matthew, Jesus gave the famous parable of the talents. Now the man in that story who began on the Christian venture but did not produce any significant results by use of his talent was finally rejected when the time of the kingdom arrived. Only those, therefore, according to that parable, who develop and exploit their talents, their God-given gifts in the service of Christ, are accepted at the end of the race, at the goal, which is to enter the kingdom of God when Jesus returns to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. That's the simple pattern of the Christian faith given us in the teaching of Jesus. It's like a race you have to begin. But it's clear that you haven't won the race when the starting gun goes off. You have to go through the trial and tribulation of this life and you have to arrive at the destination successfully as a fruit-bearing Christian fit for entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, what has made Bible study extremely confusing for many is the fact that we have substituted the alien idea of, quote, heaven as the goal of the Christian life. Jesus did not offer anyone heaven. He said, blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. Jesus spoke of the ultimate destiny of the Christian as the life of the age to come, mistranslated in our versions as eternal life. Now, that life of the age to come is indeed life forever because it involves immortality, but the phrase itself, eternal life, suffers from an unfortunate platonizing. We have come under the influence of Greek philosophical ideas in that translation, but our best biblical scholars know that the life of the coming age is the proper translation of that phrase which appears in our versions as everlasting life or eternal life. And that phrase goes back to Daniel 12, verse 2, where in the resurrection, those who come forth from their tombs to life, to permanent life, that is, are going to have the life of the age, chaye olam, as the Hebrew reads there, the life of the age to come, that is. And that phrase, life of the age to come, appears repeatedly in the teaching of Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament. You see, those New Testament writers are Jewish people thoroughly convinced that the Hebrew Scriptures provide a repository of divine truth. They rely on the revelation given to Daniel, for example, in their view of the future. Not for one moment did they think that the Old Testament was passé or superseded. They treated as God's inspired word. And we, as Christians following Jesus, must do the same. The Hebrew Bible provides the root ideas out of which Jesus' theology and teaching develops. And one of those root ideas is the life of the age to come, promised by divine revelation in Daniel 12, too, as being the life which results from the resurrection of the dead. It is at that great moment of the future at the first resurrection, when the faithful of all the ages emerge 
from their tombs that they are said to be gaining the life of the age to come, mistranslated in our New Testament as the life everlasting or eternal life. We have some quotations from standard biblical commentaries and other sources complaining that that expression eternal life or everlasting life found in our translations doesn't do justice to the original Hebrew Chaye Olam or to its Greek equivalent Zoe Aeonios. Zoe Aeonios really means the life of the age to come, the life to be gained in the future kingdom. And we're pronouncing our Greek there, of course, as a modern Greek would pronounce it, Zoe Aeonios, a beautiful phrase describing the destiny of the Christian to enjoy life in the coming age of the kingdom of God on earth when Jesus returns. And so the common use of the phrase heaven or when I get to heaven is really something of a theological disaster. My advice to those wanting to read the Bible more intelligently would be to put away once and for all this notion of heaven as the reward of the faithful at the moment of death. That's really very confusing because Jesus never imagined such a thing. Heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying, said a leading theologian, a biblical theologian at Cambridge recently, and he was absolutely right. Accept that as a challenge and do a Berean exploratory exercise on that question. Was that theologian right, who at Cambridge recently said, heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying? I suggest to you that he was absolutely on target with that remark. And once we get rid of that foreign language, that alien language about heaven going, we'll begin to read the Bible in sympathy with Jesus and his very Jewish Hebrew outlook on the future. Isn't it exciting that Jesus is coming back to establish a peaceful worldwide government based on Jerusalem? That's the hope of all the Hebrew prophets. That was the cry of all the faithful throughout the ages as they pleaded with God and said, How long, O Lord, before you intervene to put an end to the present chaos and establish a worldwide beautiful theocracy, a world empire based on the messianic promises of the Hebrew Bible. That's what we pray for when we say, Thy kingdom come. We're asking God in that prayer to send the Messiah back to establish the kingdom which is promised in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and which will produce an era of unparalleled prosperity and peace hitherto never experienced in the whole history of mankind. Thy kingdom come simply sets before the Christian the goal of entrance into the kingdom of God at the return of the Messiah in power and glory. I've written a book on this issue of the kingdom of God entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. I invite you to request it from us for your own personal Bible study at home. All you have to do is to phone the telephone number given at the end of this program. We'd be happy to send this book to you free of cost for your own personal devotional study at home and we invite you to check the facts we've been putting before you. We're convinced from our own experience over a long period of time that getting a right idea of the future as Jesus taught it, as the apostles taught it, opens up the Bible in a brilliant way. It makes sense of things hitherto confusing and it enables us to react in sympathy with the very Jewish Hebrew outlook 
of Jesus our Savior. Few are aware of the devastating effect of Greek philosophical and alien influences which affected the church from the second century onwards. We unfortunately and tragically have inherited a great deal of non-biblical material unconsciously. The Greek philosophical influence that came to bear on the original faith has had devastating effects on the way we view Jesus and his teaching. The secret of successful Bible study is to recognize that the New Testament and indeed the Old Testament itself are both very Hebrew-orientated documents. They work out of a Hebrew worldview, a view of life and of God's future, which is quite alien to the Greek philosophical way of thinking that dominated the church in post-biblical centuries. Now, we must get rid of that Greek influence which clouds our view of the New Testament itself. We have to put off the spectacles of Greek philosophical thinking through which we tend to read the New Testament documents. We must read them in their own first century Palestinian Jewish environment. That's why we're offering you the literature about the kingdom of God. We invite you to request our book on the kingdom of God by telephoning us at the number to be given at the end of this program. Remember in your studies that Jesus was a Jew whose teaching must be understood in his own first century context. We invite you to join us again as we continue to probe these most basic questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.